During the 2020 election cycle, American President Donald Trump made repeated claims about the possibility of widespread systemic election fraud through the mail balloting system that has become an important part of preserving public health in the midst of the 2020 COVID-19 pandemic. But if someone really wanted to steal or rig an election, what's the smartest way to do it? Go ahead. I want you to really think about it for a moment. This is the question that Dr. Holly Garnett asks her electoral management course at the beginning of every semester. The best way to rig an election, she says, is not to do so illegally, somehow coordinating the impersonation or double voting of enough voters to change an election outcome. Rather, the best way to rig an election is to make it perfectly legal to do so. A professor of political science at the Royal Military College of Canada, Holly has in-depth expertise in understanding how political actors manipulate election laws to give them advantages. She studies how electoral integrity can be improved throughout the life cycle of an election, focusing on electoral management, registration and voting procedures, election technology and cybersecurity, civic literacy, and campaign finance. Holly recalls the precise moment when she realized that she lived in a democracy and caught the political bug. Shortly thereafter, she got a local news crew to cover a mock election at her school and went on to serve in Canada's legislative page program. Holly tells us how she went from being actively engaged in party politics in Canada to becoming a professor interested in the behind-the-scenes work of successfully running elections. She offers her unique perspective as an expert in international election systems on the challenges faced by the United States electoral system in the lead-up to the 2020 elections. She talks about how she thinks about the act of voting relative to the archetypal rational calculus of voting. And she argues that regardless of whether or not your vote is decisive, there is something intrinsically valuable about the act. She sees voting as a great potential equalizer of political voices, but is deeply concerned about the substantial barriers to the realization of that equality in the voting process. Welcome to another episode of What Voting Means to Me. Thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, yeah, I'm really excited to have your perspective, too, as someone who lives in a different democracy, uh, share your experiences um, living in Canada, and, uh, and of course, observations you have about American democracy, which you yeah. are well-versed in from a scholarly perspective, are welcome as well. It's really fun having political scientists on here because I get to hear about your own personal experiences living in a democracy, but also, you know, I think it's great for listeners to hear things from a scholarly perspective as well. So my first question, pretty straightforward. Anything you feel called to tell listeners about yourself, what you do, where you come from, 
Yeah, so my name is Holly Ann Garnett, um, and I am an assistant professor of political science at the Royal Military College of Canada. Um, so it's a neat institution to be at. Um, so we are Canada's um, military college, so we have all branches of the military there. Officers will train um, and do their academic studies, so they'll get a degree while also doing um, military training and physical training and second language training. So we are a bilingual university, English and French, so I do teach in both languages. Wow. Um, and so it's a very cool place to be. I didn't anticipate ending up at a military college. I don't have any military background. Um, but you know the academic job market is, is not always great. So I, I didn't really have much choice. But in the end, I've actually loved it. I absolutely love being at the college. Um, I have the freedom to do whatever sort of academic research I'm interested in. And so my research focuses on electoral integrity and looking at how we can really build better elections. And so that looks at issues of security, of public trust, of inequality and accessibility. So all of those nuts and bolts of how we put together an election, how election administrators and electoral officials are working on elections to promote inclusivity, to promote full participation, to promote security. Um, and that goes for all around the world. So I do study Canadian elections, American elections, uh, but also you know comparative cross-national studies. Uh, so that's mostly what my research focuses on. And uh, I kind of got there because, you know, I do quite love elections. I remember mm -hmm. my first election that like sitting down and learning about politics one particular day with my dad and it was during an election campaign. So I've always been fascinated by elections. I've always found it really interesting. So um, when I discovered the field of electoral management and this idea of looking at the nuts and bolts of how we build better elections, uh, that's it's become my passion. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And and the the uh, anecdote that you just mentioned about uh, sitting down with your dad and learning about elections, yeah. such a great segue to sort of my yeah. my formal first question related mm -hmm. to living in a democracy, which is like, tell us a little bit about your earliest memories of living in a democracy. It could be like, yeah, talking with your parents, going with them to the polls, like that first moment of realization where you were like, oh. I live in the system where, like, I have a say or I will someday have a say. So, yeah, any anything that you can recall um, would be so cool to hear about. Yeah, so uh, unlike most people, I can say, like, I discovered my field one particular day. Like, I remember the day I discovered that politics was a thing that existed. Um, so I would have been in grade five, um, and there was a provincial election going on. I live in the province of Ontario. I grew up in Ontario, and so we had a provincial election going on, and I remember I was driving with my mom, I think to the mall or something like that, and I remember seeing all of these signs up, and I was like, Mom, what's with all these signs going on? And one of the, one of the leaders who was running in that election, uh, the leader of the Liberal Party, was Dalton McGinty, and my dad had a friend named Dalton, and I was like, oh, like, is his friend running to, like... <laughs> Anyway, so I had no idea what was going on. And, and so my dad is really the political one. Like, he's the one that we would sit down and watch the news every night together. Um, and so mom's like, okay, go ask your dad. He'll enjoy this. Uh, so I remember sitting down on the couch with my dad and him just explaining to me, this is what politics is. This is what elections are. No, my friend Dalton is not running to be premier. <laughs> why we have the signs. Uh, so at the same time, we were doing our first civics class. We do that in grade five in Ontario. I don't know if that's still the case. Uh, so we had a little mini election, like a, a mock election in our school. And I thought it was like the world's biggest 
the deal because we were doing this mock election. So I actually um, called the media and invited them to come. Oh my <laughs> God. It was like a very big deal. Anyway, and so actually right at the end of the day, they actually came because uh, they thought it would be like a good public like human interest story about these kids running their own election. And I was the deputy returning officer and I got interviewed and it was like I was on the news. It was very, very exciting for me. It was, of course, it was like local news, but we were a family that sat down and watched the news together. Yeah. At night. So I thought this was just like the best thing ever. Um, so I had the bug and then that was it. And I remember... Um, going to Ottawa and I had pretty much the day my parents were like, okay, you can do whatever you want. And I was like, I want to go sit in on question period. This is so much fun. So I was very much the like political nerd. And then what really sealed the deal was we have a legislative page program in Ontario Mm -hmm. where uh, kids that are between the ages, I think like 12 and 14 can go and work in uh, the legislature as pages. Mm-hmm. Like we deliver water and Hansard and uh, that kind of stuff. Like we're, we don't do much, but yeah. uh, so I got, I got selected to do that. And so I was able to go to Toronto and be a page. Um, and I was just sold after that. So I always loved politics and um, that was kind of my first intro. Like I always like to say, like, I remember the exact day that I yep. discovered that politics, that elections existed. Oh my God. That is such a beautiful story. And one that like the socialization aspect of like parent social their kids isn't super surprising, but just that that like it just caught onto your brain as being something that is really cool to be involved with. And, and I'm sure that um, having the affirmation from your local news station was like really nicely solidifying. Uh, so my uh, a question or a follow-up question I have though uh, is, so do you have this interest in politics? I'm curious, did you ever think about running for office or, or was like, so how do we get from this beautiful experience as a fifth grader to where you are now, a professor studying elections? Tell us a little bit more about like what that journey looks like. (laughs) How did we pick up, I guess, I was a legislative page and then I went, and that's kind of where I discovered my partisan preferences. So mm. we had to be nonpartisan as pages, but we were sitting there and watching them for hours every day. And so I let, I went in kind of not having a huge, a really firm partisan preference uh, and came out of there with a partisan preference because I was sitting and listening to them and listening to their ideas and listening to the ways that um, they were interacting with each other. Um, and so I, I became someone who was very much in favor of one particular party and their platform. So during my high school and undergrad years, I was involved in the youth wing. Um, I, uh, I, I remember my first election campaign. I essentially, I, was th- I think it was like 15 maybe, um, and I actually showed up at their doorstep and was like, hi, I'm here to volunteer. And they're like, who are you? <laughs> like, what are you doing here? Um, and they were very kind to take me under their wing. Um, so the office manager and his her her husband were very kind to me and just took me under their wing and let me ex- essentially experience everything. So on election night, mm. I was in the headquarters with the candidate because they couldn't send me out to do scrutineering or anything. So they kept me in. And um, like when the leader came to visit, I got to see the behind the scenes of how that all worked uh, because they kind of kept me safe because I couldn't really go out at that age yet. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah so I was really involved in Youth Wing. Um, I chaired a provincial, co-chaired a provincial party conference. Um, so I was very into partisan politics. Um, and so essentially when I was getting to the end of my undergrad, I was making a decision, okay, like what do I want to do? Um, but I still had this, this kind of 
spark of curiosity that I really loved. And there was a lot of things about working in politics that didn't appeal to me. You know, the instability of it, the fact that as I grew older, I my my views couldn't as easily be put into just one party. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the competition aspect that I used to find really exciting at this point seemed maybe less useful, mm-hmm. um, not the most productive way to go about things. Um, so I decided to go do a master's degree because I, I really had that spark of curiosity. And then from there, uh, it was pretty clear. I applied immediately to do PhD programs. I really like Uh, being behind the scenes. I like being somebody who can kind of stop and sit and think a little slower um, Mm -hmm. and a little more methodically. Uh, I have much respect for people who do run for politics, for people who are staffers. I have so much respect for what they do, kind of putting their lives on hold to do that Mm because there's a lot of instability there. Um, But I just don't think my personality is necessarily suited for it. And so I'm really happy that I get to have this opportunity to do research that's really going to inform the quality of elections. So since my PhD, I really distanced myself from the partisan mm-hmm. side of things. I, I haven't done partisan stuff since I started my PhD, even though my students like to try to guess, you know, I what, know. What party was it. Mine do to too. <laughs> and like, I always, I always say that like, they really wanted to, like the internet existed when I was in undergrad, so you could figure it out. But um, I really distanced myself from that particular partisan phase, but I don't regret it in any way because it was amazing to see the inside of what happens during an election campaign, to see how elections work, because uh, I was able to be a scrutineer and sit at a polling station, you know, mm-hmm. and... Oh, so that would be the, the equivalent of an election observer uh, here in the United... Like, someone who would be poll-watching, a scrutineer. That's yeah, a term that yeah, I'm yeah. actually not familiar with. So, some, like, I've done poll-watching before. Actually, well, as a researcher, I've done poll-watching. But okay. that would be the equivalent of, like, observing things happening and making sure exactly. things are... Gotcha. Okay, yeah, cool. Yeah, the vote count. Um, because we have paper ballots here um, in Canada. Some of the provinces are starting to move towards towards electronic vote tabulators and stuff. But mm-hmm. our national level elections are essentially you get this like little square ballot and people are always surprised by this. It's one little square ballot. It's got, you know, a bunch of boxes next to candidates' names. You pick a candidate, you fold it up, you pop it in the box. Like that's it, right? Because we just have, that's as simple as it is. Yep. Um, and so at the end of the election day, they essentially dump the box onto the table and they show hold up each one and you know all the different candidates representatives are there like yeah we agree this is a vote for whoever this yep. is um and they vote they they kind of tally their poll right there mm-hmm. and then they call it in and at the same time as a scrutineer you're calling it into your head office so they can also check and keep the numbers yeah so it's 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 very cool because I had those opportunities to actually watch that. Whereas if I wasn't a candidate's representative, I suppose I could have gotten hired as a poll worker, mm-hmm. um, but I was able to see the actual process and see a lot of the nuts and bolts that go behind uh, getting people out to vote and who are the people who are going to vote and who are the people who are not going to vote and trying to get a, get to understand some of the, because um, I was you know, working on campaigns right as, these sorts of new technologies were coming in to start recording. Like, is this person likely to vote for us? And if so, we're going to try to get them out to uh-huh. the Micro targeting, all of the all, all of the fancy starting yep. starting to emerge. Um, and so it was really fascinating. So I don't regret any of that at all. But I've definitely moved past. I don't think my partisan views can be fit so easily into one particular party anymore. Um, 
So yeah, so I've kind of distanced myself from mm-hmm. that. And especially because I do electoral management things, I want to stay really nonpartisan. Yeah, it was definitely good to experience that in my high school and my undergrad years. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And and um, and it, I think it might be interesting for listeners to um, get a sense of how elections are administered in Canada. So here in the United States, as you know, we have what you would call the fox guarding the henhouse, partisan secretaries of state, partisan local election officials, not everywhere, but in many places. Um, so I think it would be I'm, I'm very curious to hear a little bit more about what that's like in Canada. In Canada, we have had an independent, nonpartisan electoral management body for 100 years now. Um, so it, I think Elections Canada, I don't know the exact date, but just turned 100. So this is a body that is an independent agency that is arm's length from the government uh, that runs elections at the national level. And then we have equivalent bodies at the provincial level. Mm-hmm. Um, so as I mentioned earlier, our elections are rather simple compared to American elections. Our ballots are, are little squares of paper because at the national level, we're just voting for our member of parliament. That's it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they run elections across the entire country. So they are setting up local offices during campaigns. And we have uh, a very low-tech system in the sense we do have online registration now, but that's a relatively new development. And the other cool thing is that you actually, anyone can vote. You don't necessarily have to, well, obviously, any citizen aged 18 or older (laughs) lives in the riding or the electoral district can vote. But um, there's no... Uh, you can register at the polls very easily. Mm-hmm. So anybody can show up to their polling station and say, oh, well, I know I'm not registered, but at, they can get registered pretty easily. And we do, you do normally have to show a form of identification, um, but you can also have someone attest to your identity. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so it's, it's essentially election day. We also have advanced voting, which is in, grown in popularity in the in the last few elections. So that would be in-person advanced polling. So they'll have polling stations set up ahead of election day um, where you can go in and vote in advance. I've done that many times just because mm-hmm. I always get worried like something will happen on election day, like my car will stop, not start and <laughs> I need to make sure I vote. Yeah. Yes. Um, and so, and yeah, so you go in on election day, you would probably have gotten a card from Elections Canada or Election Management Agency that says here's where your polling station is, here's what you need to bring. You go in, you show them your card, you show them your ID, you get your little piece of paper, you go behind your screen with your little tiny pencils, like teeny yep. tiny little pencils, <laughs> X marks the spot for your one candidate in your electoral district, and you pop it, or I think they check it, they pop, you pop it in the box, that's it. You know, it's, um, I've never had lines, it's a pretty simple process. And Elections Canada is is seen as in the international community as one of the better electoral management bodies, mm-hmm. uh, very independent, very impartial. Um, and generally things, issues with electoral management are few and far between mm-hmm. here in Canada um, because we have it, it's all the same across the entire country, no matter which electoral district you're in. Um, and districting is done by, an, an again, an independent boundaries commission um, that includes academics and experts mm-hmm. and public service. And they come together and figure out what our electoral boundaries are going to look like. So it reduces any chances of gerrymandering. So elections are run quite well mm-hmm. here in Canada. Um, we're very fortunate to have a really robust electoral management system that's able to essentially, you know, 
pick up and and spring into service uh, at any particular time because we have a parliamentary system. So if we have a minority government like we do right now, you could have an election any day. You know, mm-hmm. the other thing that people often think is funny about Canadian elections is that our campaigns are really short. Yes, um, our campaigns are like a month long, <laughs> and it's like okay, let's just go for it for a month, and then and then we have our vote, and it's like okay, yeah, now let's move on. Yeah. Um, and some of that has to do with the fact that we have a parliamentary system, meaning we do have fixed election dates for majority governments, but for minority governments, it could be any time. The government could fall if they lose confidence. Mm-hmm. Uh, the campaigns are very short, and um, that doesn't mean that we don't have a creeping sense of the permanent campaigning going on, right? They're always at the ready. They're, the party apparatuses exist in between elections. The, the reality, though, is that because we are very much a parliamentary system and every little riding or electoral district is having its own little election, those systems can be very temporary. So there are mm-hmm. partisan like parties that you know will have to scramble to find a candidate to run because as our prime minister is not directly elected, right? Mm-hmm. So it's all these little contests that sometimes we'll have to scramble together for this month long or two months, you know, the time we had it for two months. That was so it was, was wild. <laughs> I was, it was just wild. Who knew? Um, yeah, so that's the other thing is that uh, it means that we kind of go through this campaign system is is quite short. So I'd love to circle back around to, wait, let me say that a little less ironically. Like, <laughs> well, um, no, I, I was thinking about this question uh, the first time, the your question about the first time voting when you mentioned you often try to advance vote, you want to make sure that you get your vote in. You, you sound like a regular voter. Uh, I think it's safe to make that assumption. And I, yeah, I would love to hear about what that first experience was like, because for so many people, I think it can be either just like, oh, I don't know, it was fine. Or like, oh my God, this was the coolest thing ever. I got to vote. So I would love to hear about it. So I'll tell you actually about my second time voting. My first time voting was a municipal election. Um, We have no parties actually where I was living there are some places where there are parties in municipal elections but where I was living there's no parties um so it was a little underwhelming let's be honest but my second time voting was very cool it was a provincial election and we were having a referendum on changing the electoral system in my province oh wow so my first voting in like uh, like a provincial election so a rather large election uh, we were, I was actually also voting about whether to change the whole system. Wow. Uh, so that was really cool. So that was in 2007. Uh, we had in Ontario, again, the province where I live, uh, a referendum on electoral reform. So BC had done this, British Columbia had done this first, where they had a citizens assembly to pick an alternative system, and then they put it to the public in a referendum to say, would you like to change the way that we vote? Because obviously, you know, we've talked a little bit now about some of the shortcomings of the the first-past-the-post system, Mm -hmm. Uh, but then we've also talked a little bit about the geographic cleavage that exists in Canada that is really important, and geography is is huge for us because Canada is large country where our population is very spread out. So that, that tie to your geography is not... Are not um, inconsequential. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so we were having this really interesting debate. My very first, my 
very second election, um, on this issue of uh, changing to a mixed member proportional system. Mm -hmm. So essentially a system where we would be combining uh, some of the benefits of first past the post or a single member plurality system uh, with a proportional component to it. So having kind of top up seats. Mm -hmm. And so it's really interesting because I, again, if you kind of go through the the internet, you can see my opinions on that um, (laughs) because I was actually campaigning for one side. And the thing that I think was really interesting, and my views on this have changed over time, is that at the time I was living up in Northern Ontario. So that's where I was born. That's where I grew up is Mm -hmm. Northern Ontario. And that has a very small population and a very huge geography. So um, our you know, we have ridings where, or electoral districts where the member of parliament has to drive hours and hours and hours to get across their entire electoral district. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, and so I had a very clear sense of that geographic connection because I was from somewhere, a smaller town where we knew our, you know, our members of parliament, we knew our members of provincial parliament. Mm -hmm. Um, and that connection to geography was a lot more clear because if you look at population wise, Northern Ontario would so easily be swallowed up by Toronto, which has way more people than we ever would. Um, so the idea of a proportional system for people living up in the North, where we thought maybe we would even lose some of our seats and make them even larger because we'd be sacrificing some seats to these proportional seats. Mm -hmm. Um, that was a huge concern. So my first election, you know, I was involved in a local committee that was uh, campaigning for one of the sides in this referendum. And it's really interesting that since I've moved down south, so I live in southern Ontario Mm -hmm. now, um, I don't live in a large, yeah, I live in Kingston where the military college is. It's not a large community, but it's, it's larger than where I grew up. And you get to see the different perspective of the fact that, you know, I maybe have less of a clear tie to that geography, to that local community, mm-hmm. as I did when I was living up north. And so that's really interesting to think about how even that second time voting was, I had to think through and question through, mm-hmm. how do I want this voting process to look like? What is it that I want my vote to be to be based on? Is it based on party? Is it based on my geography mm-hmm. of where I'm from? Is it based on a specific issue that, like, you know, if I was an environmentalist, that wouldn't necessarily come through if we if we had just a, a single member plurality system. Um, so that was a really neat second time voting. It's interesting hearing about that experience and hearing about the things that you were considering as you were weighing your votes, because that sort of gets at the heart of what I'm trying to do with this podcast, which is, you know, tell us about your experiences living in democracy and in your case, mm-hmm. studying a democracy or studying democracies across the world. Um, but also just like, what does it mean to you when you actually cast your vote? So I want to put mm-hmm. a pin in that because there's okay. a, a couple more questions <laughs> I want to ask. I would love for you to I don't know, weigh in on what you think is happening in the United States right now in terms of our elections. And if you're not comfortable talking about it, I totally get it. But like Mm -hmm. your expertise as a, obviously as someone who doesn't live in the United States, um, as someone who studies things from a a neutral scholarly bureaucratic perspective would be really, really valuable, I think, for both Mm -hmm. myself, quite honestly, but also for folks to, to listen to in terms of like, what are we doing right? Probably more importantly, what are we doing wrong? Mm-hmm. Uh, any any thoughts you have on that? I would I would love to hear. This isn't 
I think what I'm going to bring up isn't just an American issue. Mm -hmm. I think it's an issue with democracies around the world. I think the question we need to start focusing on is not voter fraud and fraudulent voting, Mm -hmm. at least in established democracies like Canada, the U.S., but more who is not voting. Mm -hmm. So I am more concerned about the votes that are not getting cast because we put up barriers towards voting. I'm more concerned about that than you know, the random few instances we have actually seen of voter fraud. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I think that's one thing that people are talking about a lot right now in the American context is if we have mail-in balloting, is there going to be more fraud? There's, There's no evidence of that. But there is clear scholarly evidence that there are definitely administrative barriers to voting, whether that be voter ID, whether mm-hmm. that be not having options for convenience voting, mm-hmm. whether that be accessibility for people with disabilities, whether that be even just going back a few steps and saying, look at all the cognitive costs that it takes to cast a ballot in the United States. Mm-hmm. You have- to make sure you're registered by a certain deadline. Your procedures are going to be different maybe from the person in the next state over or even the next county over. Mm-hmm. So the amount of cognitive costs that it takes to figure out how am I going to get registered on time? What do I need to bring? What, you know, what is this process going to look like? Adding on to that, the the current safety concerns, you know, am I going to be putting my health oh my gosh, in yes. schools? That's what I'm concerned about is I'm concerned about that and not about the very few irregular instances that have been seen of voter fraud, because that is actually, I think, the biggest threat to these established democracies is that the types of people who vote are not the same as the types of people who don't vote. We see that over and over and over again, that there are gaps in terms of education levels, income levels. And we know that that's related to some of the costs of voting, that there are cognitive costs Mm -hmm. and sometimes even actual resource costs. If you want to get an ID, if you want to get yourself to the polls, to voting. And that's, I think, the biggest challenge that a lot of established democracies, Canada included, is, is experiencing is that, you know, we don't have especially in a system without compulsory voting, we don't have 100% turnout. So what are those voices that aren't being heard? Mm -hmm. That's my biggest concern. And I think that's what the United States really has to grapple with is who's not voting and have we put up barriers um, to prevent them from voting or to just make it so difficult Mm -hmm. that it takes so much of those costs. Um, Because I'm sure you've studied, like, Sorry, of course you study, but like maybe your students are studying down from this rational calculus of voting. Oh, yeah. And the reality is that those costs are real. And especially, especially in a place like the United States, Mm -hmm. those costs are real. And, you know, maybe that sense of duty or maybe that sense of of wanting your candidate to win can, can overcome that in some cases. But I think there's many people for whom those other factors are not strong enough to overcome some of those costs. Yes, I'm nodding so much because it's really encouraging for me as someone living in this system to hear someone who doesn't necessarily have a vested, like, political interest in what happens in American politics, observe the same things that I'm observing. Sometimes I think I'm a crazy person. Sometimes I'm like, is it real? Because I I question whether or not I'm letting a partisan lens or an ideological Mm -hmm. lens filter my, I have the same perspective as you, which is 
barriers to voting are bad. <laughs> Unnecessary mm-hmm. barriers to voting are bad. And, you know, I've, mm-hmm. you know, obviously seen the evidence or lack thereof of individual voter fraud. I always say this to my students. It's a really dumb way to try to steal an election. Exactly. Okay. I teach a course that I like to call how to rig an election. It's not actually called that. Yeah. It's called like electoral integrity and malpractice. And one of the exercises I get them to do is like, if you were somebody who wanted to steal an election, what would you do? You attack the election laws. You make it perfectly legal for you to do absolutely everything that you want to do. And that's the reality is that people are very rarely going out on election day. But the reality is the best way to rig an election is a way that is perfectly legal, you yeah. know, and that's that's the reality with electoral integrity. And that's why I say I study electoral integrity is because it's about a larger sense of integrity that mm-hmm. you can be following election laws to the T and still be leaving people out and leaving voices out and advantaging, advantaging some candidates over other candidates. Yeah. And that's that's the challenging thing. Um, the reality, though, is that even though we aren't invested in the same way that you are, um, the rest of the world does pay keen attention because yes. what happens in the U.S. affects us. You know, yes. we, especially here in Canada, we are very much affected by what goes on in the United States. So I think that's why oftentimes you'll get a lot of international people and commentators who are like studying American elections. I've often get get asked that at the border when I cross over for a conference or whatever, and I'll mm-hmm. explain what I'm doing. They're like, why do you care so much? First of all, because the United States is a really fascinating laboratory to study elections of because you have so many different systems. So you can study the impact of different measures and different innovations. The variation in way, is great for research. Yeah, in a way that is it, that you can't necessarily um, in other places. But then also because, you know, it, it does affect us. So, yeah. so to you, the Americans listening, you know, when you're making that decision because of this, the state of the world and, and the, the weight that the United States has in it, uh, we are affected by yeah. your decision as well. Yeah. Um, that so. thought crossed my head as soon as I said that. I was like, well, well, of course, of course, people around the world still, even though our standing has fallen in recent years, mm-hmm. you know, are looking to see what happens in the United States. And of course, what happens here, I mean, especially in such an interconnected and, and globalized world, what happens here is um, really, really important. Yeah, no, I, I think it's it's like I, I always try to be mindful of, um, am I letting a partisan or ideological filter mm-hmm. color the way I'm looking at evidence or color the way I'm looking yeah. at data? I wish more people would do that. I'm not saying yes. I do it perfectly, but I feel- oh, no, but that's that's absolutely absolutely the case. And I think one of the things that that I love about you know the Ezra community and the election sciences community, the idea of we're going to treat elections as a science, and we're going to say, okay, it does this intervention. You know, let's say we want to inc- have early voting, for example. I've so I've done research on early voting in different countries. Yeah, it's it's important for some people, but let's be honest, in a lot of cases, the people who are using early voting are the people who would vote anyway, are the people yep. who are more educated, the people who are going to end up going to the polls anyway. So I do think our community, though, does have a sense of being able to say, okay, this is a, a generally a very good intervention, but we also need to recognize that if our goals are to have inclusive participation and inclusive voting practices, maybe this is not the way to do it. Yes. Um, and there's some really good studies that have been done um, you know, I think to all the work Barry Burden has done, for example, yep. uh, where you say, okay, these are things that you're implementing, but there are also, you know, hidden costs to that. 
And so I think that just our the ability to say that and to just not be like automatically, these are all great, you know, is to, to look at sort of these interventions with a critical lens and, and through really rigorous science, scientific method. Scientific method <laughs> yes. I think... I don't know. That's what helps me sleep at night. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I agree. You know, I was thinking about this in the context of the mail voting debate that's happening here right now, because clearly voting by mail is, in the context of the United States, the safest way to ensure public health in the middle of a pandemic. It, it just, it is. And at the same time, I don't want us to have blinders on in terms of the limitations there. So the, the work that I've done with Dan Smith and Henrietta Shino, um, looking at ballot rejections in Georgia, for example, we know that there are certain groups of people who are more likely to make mistakes on ballots. And it's not, that doesn't mean we don't use mail voting. That means mm-hmm. that we do better with voter education. And Give our local election officials more resources. This is my, this is the horse that I will not step off of. This is the hill I am willing to die on. Like, give our local election officials the resources that they need to run elections. There's a quote from, you've read like Rick and stuff, right? The, his, yeah. yeah. Oh my God. I love the way he writes. I love assigning his book because it's accessible. It's easy to read, but it's like so well done. But he has a quote that's like, never, never assign. Oh, attribute to malice what could have been done by. Incompetence. Never attribute to malice what is probably the result of incompetence. I'm butchering the quote. Or yeah. I would say incompetence and also lack, lack of support. Of lack of support, yeah. Because have, you know, obviously looked at the um, local election official survey that Gronke is doing, uh, Paul Gronke is doing um, with the folks up in Oregon. And man, these folks, like, they really care about what they do. <laughs> local election officials and poll workers are the unsung yeah. heroes of democracy. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. Anyway, um, I think this is a great point uh, to sort of circle back around to the big question that animates this podcast, which mm-hmm. is what does the act of voting mean to you? I'll, I'll give you my first answer and then I'll give you like my further reflected answer. Awesome. Um, so my first answer was regardless of what anyone says, your vote matters. Voting matters, that every vote matters. Um, and, the, you know, the example I was going to give is the fact that I come from a, an electoral district where two times within my voting career, we have had an election decided in under 20 votes. Wow. I have a very clear sense that my vote could make the difference. Yep. You know, we've had judicial recounts. We've had a, 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 you know, we're a pretty close riding that bounces back and forth between two parties, although it's pretty solidly in, in one, one camp. But anyway, point being that I have experienced these elections. I've experienced even working on these elections where, you know, things are so close. So your vote does matter. So I have this sense of that. But then I started thinking, um, and I, I just couldn't get downs out of my head. And this idea that voting is actually pretty irrational. The chances mm-hmm. of your vote making it a huge difference at the end of the day, they're pretty slim, let's be honest, mm-hmm. in most cases. So there has to be something more going on. There has to be something that still still causes me to believe that this is an essential act of democracy. And I think the reality is, is because it is, it is our voice. Like in the at the end of the day, 
the way that most citizens are going to participate in politics is through this act of voting. And so regardless of whether you make that decisive vote, because let's be honest, most of us don't live in electoral districts where it's going to be come yep. down to 20. Um, I think that act, that civic act of casting a ballot, of saying, of having a say in what goes on, I think there's something intrinsically valuable about that regardless. Mm-hmm. Um, and so even if even if you are, say, you're in, in an area where it's like, well, like like Connecticut. I mean, you guys had your primary and it was like... I voted. I did. Like, what does this matter, right? Yeah. Even if, it, even if it doesn't matter, because let's be honest, most votes at the end of the day, you know, you're not going to make the decisive decision. Yeah. There is still something important and intrinsically valuable about investing in your democracy in that particular way. Yeah. So when I was thinking about this question, it went from like, but your vote matters to, okay, well, even if it doesn't, there is something still intrinsically. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. About the voting process and, and the acknowledgement that if, if we want our democracy to continue, it requires us to continue uh, participate in that way. The other interesting thing about voting is it's kind of, and obviously, there are resource costs. We talked about the cognitive of course. resource costs. <laughs> yeah. But if you think about it, it's this one act where your vo- vote ideally weighs just as much as the richest guy yep. in or girl, but let's be honest, you know, guy in, yeah. in the top of an office tower, right? Political donations, that's not equal. The people who donate are going to be quite different yep. and who have the funds to do that. People who have, who maybe have the time and energy and networks to be engaged in things like protests and petitions and such. But voting is the system that is set up that is by design so equal. Um, and isn't that what we want a democracy to be? Yep. And that is why when I said like what's, when you talked about the challenges to American democracy or whatever, is if we start watering that down, if, mm-hmm. if by the sort of practices we put in place in order for someone to go vote, we make it so that um, not everybody has equal opportunity mm-hmm. in, in the voting sphere, that's dangerous. Yes, yes. And, and there's so many parts of the U.S. Constitution that, you know, have at least in terms of legal decisions made it incredibly difficult to realize that equal protection. All of the conflicting pieces, the the 10th Amendment and, you know, states have the right to, you know, govern their elections the way that they, it's, it's, it's maddening. It's maddening to me because I know these are pieces of our Constitution, but I also know that we have, in theory, we're supposed to have equal protection. Of course, voting, if you really think about it, is technically irrational, but, like, it sounds like you derive a sense of, well, there's the civic duty component of it and sort of the the meaning that comes from that. But would it be safe to say that you feel that the act of voting allows you to be represented and heard by your government? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think many folks think about the act of like the ballot then connects to who, what the outcome is, connects to Paul. It's like that, that connection maybe Mm -hmm. isn't always made, but that sense of like, I guess, external efficacy is really important too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm trying to think if I can think of a really good example of where my vote resulted in a different government getting in resulting. Yeah. And that's like, but at the moment I can't. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's just one of those things like it might just be 
unresolved in terms of like what is the actual utility in voting we know it matters like we know that if people don't do it democracies die and if they're not able to do it democracies die it's again like one of the biggest collective action problems we face you know well i didn't do it but my neighbor did or you know is it going to matter and there's a lot more work to do on that front. Well, I think those are all the questions I have for you, except I did want to ask if there's anything you want to promote, any research, any Ooh. media appearances, any articles. <laughs> you know, I'm going to I'm going to link a couple of articles when I when I post it on the website. Um, the article, if I may just geek out a little bit, the article on e-government um, that you it was an elect. Oh, I was writing a grant application in June and you your name was all over it. It was like, oh, thank you. Yes, yes, thank yes. You. it was such a um, it was such a great piece. So here's the thing. And I think this is like a nice, like window into the academic world. That was a piece that I legit thought was not going to get published because I pitched, like I sent it in to so many different places. And I was at the point where I even asked one of my colleagues, I'm like, where do you send papers to die? Like, you know, but, um, but they saw some value in it and they said, okay, try, you know, make these changes and try again. And um, so I'm really glad to hear that. That's always really lovely to hear. Well, because- and it was an inspiration. Uh, um, uh, Leah Maravaki and I um, have a piece that's largely descriptive. No, it is descriptive <laughs> that looks at variation in voter education policies across the United is States. That, is that the one in state politics and policy? No, it hasn't come out. I mean, it's, it's under review oh. right now. So we're okay. like, think, but it, it just sort of gave me hope that like, there's really great descriptive work that is being done that is so valuable and it doesn't have to be the final word on any topic like of course it's not the final word on you know now the next step is all right like let's look at what this variation means for different Mm -hmm. outcomes and like let's see if we can Mm -hmm. maybe map it over time I don't know maybe we need to co-author something I'm just spitballing here (laughs) but no I I really um the that that piece just was it was so like thorough and well written in terms yeah. of the the you drew on a number of sources that I hadn't come across. Um, I love the way that you categorized and organized the different sort of aspects of e-governance. So it was really really great. So anyway, if there's any other research yeah, you want to okay. plug, I would love to promote you. Okay, so in general, um, I do keep a website where I uh, put up everything that's new coming up. Um, so that's hollyangarnett.com. I also do work with the Electoral Management Network and the Electoral Integrity Project. So those are uh, kind of in terms of comparative stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, groups of people that do a lot of really good work. And a new book, uh, Edited Collection with Toby James, Building Inclusive Elections out oh, cool. with Routledge. So that is out now. I just got my physical copy. Oh, congratulations. I love hearing from practitioners too. Um, like I, I love when they'll email and be like, can we just like chat about voter registration or something? That's probably my favorite thing to do is I kind of do shy away a bit from the media thing, but I, I love just having like a Zoom chat with practitioners. So don't be afraid to reach out, especially if you're somebody who is an electoral official. Mm. I would love to hear from you. I'd love to chat with you about what your biggest challenges are because I've had some of the best research projects come out of chats with electoral practitioners who have mentioned things. uh, Like there's one paper that I wrote about New Zealand's advanced voting that was seriously, should they come to a talk that I'd given? And I was just talking with a couple of people from Elections New Zealand. And by the time we left, we had exchanged cards and they were like, we have this data that we've never really analyzed. And I'd be like, well, let me help you with that. So that is um, the best. So I'd love to hear from any practitioners and electoral officials who are who are keen to to just chat through some of the things that you're doing. Yes, I've I've got them in my network, so they will be alerted uh, to this episode. 
and that's our job. Like that's yeah. what we are high, you know, in my, in my case, like I get a salary from the federal government, right? Yeah. So like, yeah, this is part of my job is, is as an academic is to make sure that my work doesn't just sit on my shelf. Yes. Yeah, 100% agreed. I, I, I think it's so important to like move beyond just the publish publications and I mean, publications, teaching, like super important, but, you know, being able to actually have an impact outside of the classroom and the scholarly journal articles um, is really, really great. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much for taking the time. It was fun. Yeah, it was really a lot of fun. With somebody who's, like, legit interested in talking about, like, the I love talking about elections, and now I'm, like, going to go into my workday feeling totally jazzed and, like, ready to do my own work, so I, I really appreciate your taking the time. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much. Uh, stay safe. I hope the start of your semester is good and I'll be in touch with edits and whatnot. Um, and yeah, I'm so excited to get this out there. All right. Take care, Holly. See you later. Bye. Bye.